Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Today we have joining us Mark Musselman of MX5 Consulting. Mark, welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. This is a guy I've been trying to get on the show for a long time, so I'm happy we finally got you here. So uh, welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Mark, tell us a bit about what you're doing today and your company. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So uh, about 11 years ago, after I came through a family ownership uh, experience for about 20 some years, I started my own coaching and consulting business. So what I do basically now is I've harvested all the experiences I had as a sales leader, organization leader, and I take those skills and I basically am working primarily one-to-one, mostly with folks like you. They're entrepreneurs or they're people who have um, a senior leadership responsibility. So a lot of coaching one-to-one can be with high-performing salespeople or salespeople who are underperforming, know they have the potential. And then, you know, there's general consulting and business advice that occurs inside that space as well. So um, I I love working at the level of individual. So one-to-one teams, you know, could be a leadership team or organizations as a whole. So I've been doing that now for about 11 years and um, have really, really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Mark, share with me how you got your start in sales. Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I, you know, I thought about this question. It really began probably when I was about 12 years old. Truth be told, I was in a neighborhood in Littleton, Colorado, and noticed that there were a lot of lawns that needed mowing. And <laughs> I had a great lawnmower in the garage. So I went, put the flyer together back in those days. We didn't have, you know, the kind of tools we have today. And then I went out and I basically marketed myself to a neighborhood at that early age and developed over time with a partner of mine, a guy named Mark Rukavina. Uh, and we ended up mowing the probably the, the most number of lawns in, say, the I live in this place called Aberdeen Village in the entire village. And so, you know, started there and then we would come back and we'd promote that around snow shoveling in the wintertime, all the things that young you know, entrepreneurial oriented kids would do. And, you know, so I I use that as a point of reference. My formal career in sales began when I got hired out of college. I went to CU in Boulder and I got hired to work for Ernest and Julio Gallo. So, you know, they're one of the, yeah, they're one of the kind of giants in, you know, consumer product sales. And that's really where I learned the science of sales. Right, right. Are there any particular memories from that, like any crazy stories or anything you have from that that time? Well, back in those times, you know, I'd say the thing that I realized about sales, and it's probably true across whatever, is you have to love what you do, right? And I remember um, being in a circumstance about near the second end of the second year of my time with Gallo, and I found myself in a moment when all my values as a human being were colliding with what I was doing in a moment. I was in a liquor store in Golden, Colorado, a place called Foss Drug. And it was, I'm, I'm a big family guy. I come from a big family. And I remember sitting there and being involved in handing out 
Tots Champagne, which is like they had Andre Champagne, they had Tots, to people coming in. And it was this moment, and I use this story all the time when I talk to people in sales about really making sure that who you are and the values that you adhere to align with the company or the organization and what you're going to be doing. Because if they don't, what happens is, it, is what happened to me that night. It was basically the eve of Thanksgiving, and I found myself holding a tray and handing it out. You could do that in those days. Right. And uh, this massive confrontation happened inside me. I walked over to the counter. I handed the guy's name was Lee. I handed a tray of champagne glass to Lee and said, "Lee, thank you. I think this may very well be the very last, you know, uh, sample of champagne I ever pass out." I went back home, celebrated Thanksgiving, went back in the next day and handed in my notice. And that was the first place for me. As a, it's not maybe it's not that funny, but it's just like it was so memorable. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And I, I know so many people, and I work with lots of people who operate outside their value structure and they live in dissonance right and right. and and you know and no wonder they're not happy and and you know they're not producing and all those things that sales people are kind of designed by nature to do right you know it's yeah. funny as an entrepreneur um we talk about our core values of our companies all the time and for me it it made me start thinking about what are my core values you know, not, and I thought about it generally, but I never actually sat down and created a list um, because I do think we do have to uh, have that um, very, uh, or just awareness of what are those lines? Where are our lines that define who we are as humans? Right, well, I just, uh, just to kind of segue off of that a little bit, I just had a conversation with a coaching client yesterday. He's an, H, uh, an IBM executive. And, and he's been sort of, let's just say, gruntled. He's not disgruntled, but he's gruntled, right? So he's right. not all the way there, but he's thinking about where else he could go. And, and I said, well, you know, if let's imagine for a second, you put yourself on match.com, right? right? And so match.com has this algorithm that says you're going to go through filters and it, you know, age, you know, whatever the circumstances are. And I said, let's do the same thing with like where you are in your career. And so I think in some ways, values formulate the foundation for that filter. And so he was initially thinking about the possibility of moving out of Denver. And then we came through like, what do you value? Well, I value family. Well, where is your family? The family is here. It's like, okay, so we eliminated moving out of Denver. Right. And then we just went one value after another. And what, it, what happened for him is he came to this place of just absolute clarity. Yeah. And, and from that, there's so much a human being can do. Yep. And so he found himself empowered where at the start of the conversation, he was feeling disempowered. And I mean, like broken almost, right? So yep. it was really, and I think you, just you sharing that about what you do with those values. Yep. And you and I both would know, and I think this is a critical thing for salespeople to do. I don't, you know, it's like, who are you? What do you stand for? What matters? And yep. then are you doing the things that align with those values? Yep. I think that's really, really important. Um, as sales leaders, you know, number one uh, responsibility is that, that revenue number. You know, what are we hitting our numbers? Um, that is where most of the focus is. In your opinion, what should sales leaders be focusing on? That's a great question. I mean, we could probably spend the duration of this conversation just on that one question. And I, you know, I don't say this 
by any means as if I have anything called truth. It's just a reflection of my experience. And, you know, I think from a leadership perspective, there is this awareness that when I'm working with you, you know, you're a whole person, right? And you, you may have the most phenomenal skill set as a salesperson, but there could be something, you know, amiss or broken in another part of your life. You know, it could be you're, you know, you're out of shape, you're obese, you know, you have a relationship with your spouse or your partner that's kind of under duress and, you know, this sense of being lost and adrift. So I think from a leadership perspective, approaching the person who's on your team as a whole entity, you know, Stephen Covey, I think really did a great job. He used to talk about it around body, mind, heart, and spirit, right? So it's just looking at you as a sort of this four quadrant. And I have a model that's like physical, financial, relational, spiritual, and intellectual. And then trying to really understand the person as a whole person, because if I'm coming at you and the, the, the symptom is no sales or underperforming sales, and I'm approaching it and I'm not on the thing that is really the cause of that, I could spend a half a year, a year. And in some sales organizations, as you well know, where the sales, you know, uh, process could run a half a year or a year, you know, you can spend an entire yep. year on the wrong thing. Yep. yep. So I always like to begin, you know, there's a question that I begin every single conversation with, which is, you know, if I was working with you one-on-one in sales, like what's the most important conversation you and I need to be having right now? Right. And then, you know, instead of me landing something in your world that may not even resonate for you, my goal as a leader, a sales leader or any other leader is to listen to that and then you say, hey, you know, tell me more about that. Right. You know, wh- why is that something that you're that you want to talk about? And, you know, that requires trust. Right. It requires openness. And, you know, so those things. So we're, I think, conditioned. And I, I don't want to make a generalization. Not everybody's this way, but I think most of us, especially when we're in sales, we want to have a sense of bravado and that, you know, we've got it all together. How do you get past that suit of armor to really create that trust and openness to where people are, are in a comfortable place to where they can open up? I love that question. I think it begins with the leader demonstrating and having a willingness to be open and vulnerable, him or herself to start. You know, so one of the things that I like to do, and you already touched on it here, is use stories. You know, my, my you know, 30-some year career is filled. It's riddled with, you know, brokenness and, you know, lack of results and and I like to connect and say, you know, there was a time when I, or I've worked with other people who have, and then, you know, or discuss a, a story. And then I might even say, you know, Chris, what did you hear in that story? Or Chris, why, why do you think I would tell you that story? Right. And then let you follow up. Well, you might tell me that story because, and it's a great, so go on. What else, you know, keep right. going. Right. And so I, you know, I, I love to use story or metaphors or, you know, analogies to create an opening to right. a conversation. And, and you and I, you know, both are probably deeply rooted. And this is what I will give my uh, acknowledgement to Ernest and Julio for training me on is this whole world of effective open-ended questions, right? 
Oh yeah. One thing at Gallo that you didn't even do, you never stepped out of their building to, to be in front of a customer ever until you had mastered the art of effective questions. And effective questions simply are questions that have, you know, no possibility of a yes or no answer. Right. And right. so they create conversation. And, yep. and what I know about most people is they like to talk. Mm -hmm. We all have a story. A hundred. Yeah, absolutely. So that, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how oh, I yeah. would get somebody beyond the armor, uh, right. you know, by showing them that I don't need to have it. And, and sometimes in a, a, you know, hierarchically, if I'm, you know, in a leadership role and I'm working, you know, just tell them like, listen, this is not, per there's no perfect, this is messy. I had to learn this way. Here's some mistakes I've made, you know, let's talk about how this could relate to where you are, you know, and, and the idea is to, there's a great phrase, which is falling forward, right? Failing forward, that whole thing. And yep. that's, that's the framework that I like to operate out of. Yep. I, I'm a big believer in using failure as a learning tool. What are your thoughts around that? Or how do you leverage, you know, those, and I don't like the word failure, but it's, you know, not everything is a win. You know, right. sometimes you lose. Um, how do you yeah. structure that as a learning opportunity as a coach? Yeah, I think, you know, this is uh, like the core really of the conversation that I tend to be in with um, I don't, whatever client I'm with, whether it's a sales leader or an organizational leader, is this awareness that the, the, the value of any experience, and you don't like the word failure, I don't either. Um, I like the word learning opportunity, the phrase learning opportunity, right? Like, so let's slow down and take a look at what just occurred. And then let's examine it for what we can use as a means to continue to grow and evolve. Yep. I'm an enormous, I, I, so I was part of a manufacturing organization for 20 some years. We were a sort of a Lean Six Sigma, you know, Dr. Deming, you know, a black belt environment and this idea of continuous improvement. So the one thing that I have found is if I use the language of continuous improvement with anybody, it invites them into this conversation that doesn't talk about right and wrong. It's just about continuously evolving. Yeah. In, in order to evolve, we have to have had an experience from which we can evolve. Yep. And so, yeah, not everything works out, right? I mean, right. you and I have had probably countless moments that created an opportunity to grow and learn. Yeah. I think that the single biggest um, oversight is when people don't slow down to debrief. And they just run from one experience to the next. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, I can accumulate all of that, you know, stuff. And then I can start to get in my head. And then I can start creating stories about all the stuff that I've accumulated in my head. Right. And next thing I know, it doesn't matter how skilled I am. There's no possible way I'm going to be effective because I'm in my own head. I may be defeated before the day even starts. Right. 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 So, yeah. As a sales leader, what's the maximum amount of time I want to go before I sit down and do those retrospectives with my team? Yeah. So, you know, again, so I was, I'll use a couple of different examples. When I first was working at Gallo, we actually met every single day. Wow. Every day we had a team of about seven people with a sales leader and we would group and gather 
and we debrief what happened the day before. And this is back in the eighties, late eighties. Right. So, I mean, it was just a thing that we did yep. and it must've worked because they were an incredibly successful business, right? Oh, and yeah. are still today, yep. but that's, that's one level of frequency. And then the crazy part in that environment, because they didn't have CRM systems back then, right? It was all right. hand sheeted tallies. Right. So we had to kind of physically gather together to identify what worked, what didn't work and what course corrections we needed to make for the next day right. as we went back out in the field. So we would meet every day. And, you know, I've gone at that interval and then then other places where I've been, it's been like once a week, the sales team sort of slows down, talks, jumps up to that sort of 15, 30,000 foot level and, and just takes a different perspective. Yep. And then there's other organizations that I've been involved in where they might do that once a year as a team, yeah, you know, and, and I think those are more the independent, you know, manufacturers, representatives that are located, you know, desperately across the country. Right. Um, right. So I think, you know, you know, obviously with what we're doing right now, which is on zoom, yep. it opens up so many channels. I believe that, let me put it this way. There's, there's a quote from, uh, uh, Oh, what's the name of the guy from UCLA who used to coach basketball? He won John Wooden. So John Wooden has a quote that not every conversation is a good conversation, but no conversation is almost always bad. Right. And what he was saying with that is, you know, um, everything has the potential to be worked through in conversation, where if we stay outside of conversation, right. then things can get, you know, which they do, made up and misinterpreted. Yeah. So, you know, I think optimally, if you have the ability depending on the size of the team, once a week is a great cadence. Once a month is, you know, better than once a quarter, once a quarter. So, you know, it depends on your bandwidth, but I, I love more frequency because it keeps people more aligned. And one thing I have learned above everything else in sales is that if you have an underperforming salesperson, the last thing that person wants to do is be involved in a conversation that has them talking about their underperformance. Right. So if you give time, they'll take as much time as you will give them to avoid the conversation. Right. The benefit of a frequency in conversation that's grounded in sort of the what's so what's going on is you're actually helping them. Right. There's, it's actually very, very um, nurturing in the sense that you don't give them a very long time to ruminate in and sort of marinate in the discomfort of being off target because you're going to have a conversation right that and, and then it's about how do we draw other people in and having people say hey i need help yep. i've done everything i can to hit my numbers no matter what i do it's not working and i would love the help of the team yep and that's when really powerful results show up mm. and you know that that's the kind of culture in a sales team i, I like to you know sort of foster right right you know, in, in the tech world where I live, we do daily scrums, daily standups, right. whatever you want to call it. Um, one of the trends that I see commonly is you will have people that will uh, not really divulge what's going on. You know, they'll, they'll just skim the surface in their, their updates. As a sales leader, if I'm, if I'm doing, whether it's a daily or weekly meeting, how do I address that? you know, and, and set the example that, hey, no, I want more, I want deeper. How do I look for that and stay on point myself 
to make sure that people are really delivering value in these meetings. Right. Well, I, you know, I think what you've touched upon is this notion that in order for any team to work effectively, it has to have a platform and a foundation of trust. So people withhold when they don't trust in the condition of the team. With more trust comes more transparency, right? And, and so, you know, I look at that, you know, sometimes leaders look at the, the team members as if it's their problem, right? right? They're the ones withholding or, or you, know, you know, but it's really a leadership issue. Right. So there's something that I would be looking at in that casing. What is it that I'm doing, not doing, saying, not saying that's prohibiting or interfering with the condition called trust? Right. Because what I know is if, if you have created an environment that's filled and, and, and you know, uh, sort of emanates in trust, people will share. Right. And you know, there's this thing that I use all the time called call a thing a thing, you know, and, and, and then the what's so of, you know, certain, and so when you have like a, your, your stand-up scrum meeting and people are withholding, and I'm not by any means suggesting that there's not a condition and culture of trust there, but, you know, people are reticent. They don't want to get in trouble. Right. So people are working to gain approval, avoid disapproval, and avoid getting in trouble almost universally. Yep. And so you, as a, you know, organizational leader or a sales leader embodies the entity that can a demonstrate disapproval yep. and get somebody in trouble yep. so uh, you really have to do a consistent and remarkable job at i think saying that so that tone right right i remember reading about and i forget the gentleman's name but he uh he came in as ceo from boeing into i think it was either gm or ford and it was ford and they were telling the story about in, you know, he had weekly status meetings with all the top people that were over all the different product lines. And they had these thick binders to track all the issues um, associated with their product lines. And when he started the meetings, they, they used color coding, you know, with, uh, you know, green, yellow, red. Yeah. Everything was all green, maybe a little bit of yellow, but like no red. And so he picked up on that pretty quick. And then he, he realized like, you know, he called it out and said, you know, I'm not buying this. There's no way at an organization this side, there's no red. Right. What's really going on? And when he opened up and created that level of trust so people know, hey, look, if I come here and I report a problem, I'm not gonna get my head chewed off. Like within two weeks, all the binders were just red. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so now they could really start fixing stuff and making things right. better, you know? And, and so it really is. I've, I've, I've always remembered that story that I'm like, if I'm ever in that situation, it is about creating that trust. So people are like, hey, I'm willing to bring my problem to you and ask for help. Yeah, and, and I can tell you from the transition I made in 2009 into this coaching, consulting, facilitation work, um, as the kind of primary basis of my career now, yep. I run into all kinds of circumstances where I'll show up in a room with a leadership team and like you can hear a pin drop. Right. And what that is an indication of, like nobody here trusts right. the leader. Right. Because there's no conversation taking place. 
Yep. And everybody's sitting on their hands and they're biting their lips and they're hoping and praying that I don't call on them. Right. You know? right. And, because, right. and if they do, they've probably got an answer yep. that'll fit the moment and it'll get them through and by. But there's no there's no real ability to work on anything that's meaningful. Right. Right. Yeah. And see, as sales leaders or any leader, you're failing if people are not bringing you problems. Um, it means just what you said. They're they're scared, you know. Right. There's all kinds behind your door. It's probably total chaos. You have no idea, but you're thinking, "Hey, everything's great. We're we're killing it." Right. And there's this, and you know this. There's this delicate balance between the creating a culture that promotes openness and then sort of allowing people to have problems, also work on them, empower them. Yep. You know, you know, to come forward with solutions. So I see leaders also who yep. become, you know, they actually create a dependency. Yes. And and that's another, you know, on the other side yep. of the pendulum, you know, I've done there's that. a line of yeah, you know, line of people out their door and yep. no one can do anything without them. And that's that's the other side of the equation. Oh yeah. I did that when I was a, a young manager and I just thought like, man, I am such a great yeah. leader. I'm solving all their problems, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And then one day it dawned on me, I have created a giant bottleneck in the organization. Yeah. I'm not really helping anybody. I'm, I've just created a bottleneck. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I mentioned before in that whole manufacturing, I look at all this stuff through the theory of constraints, right? Yep. Just because that's my, my orientation when it comes right. to manufacturing. And, you know, if you think about the, what you just named, you become a massive constraint. Yes. To the organization and i see this happen all the time where a sales leader who you know has to insert themselves or assert themselves in every circumstance right so nobody on the team feels like they can do anything without his or her approval right or yep. organizational ceos etc who have to sign off on everything and be involved in everything and like it, it grinds everything to a halt yeah so yeah i think it's uh, there's an awareness on both sides of that pendulum right for sure yeah. Yeah. I created, I learned a long time ago that I want to hear about every problem, but when you bring me a problem, I also want to hear your solution. Yeah. And let's talk about it and we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's awesome. Let's uh, transition a little bit to talk about one of my favorite topics, CRM. Yeah. Um, when it comes to CRM, do you love it or do you hate it? Well, I'd say it's, um, it's essential, right? I mean, information as a variable right in playing the game of business yep. is absolutely essential and i remember i you know my dad was a mechanical process engineer um and he did some amazing work in the center of his career but he used to always talk about this idea of garbage in garbage out right yep. oh yeah so you know the, the the thing that i would say of all the sort of variables of a CRM, it's the sales front end of the pipeline, right? And, and then you and I, you know, people don't yep. want to look bad. They yep. tend to, salespeople are very optimistic. Yep. Um, they tend to greatly, mostly over-exaggerate the possibility of an opportunity because, yep. you know, they're, they're look, trying to gain favor and look good and hit numbers and all that yep. stuff. So I, I think this idea of CRM, in every way that it can be conceived and, and experienced is essential. 
Yep. It's as essential as product. Yeah. I mean, you, you cannot today really function effectively, I don't believe, without a strong, reliable CRM platform. And I think the conversation we've been having up to this point in time yep. really is this, how do leaders create a condition so that when somebody who's interacting with the CRM feels comfortable putting you know, information in there, that's, that's legitimate. Yep. Because as you and I both know, I mean, putting in grossly exaggerated numbers in, a, there's no system that can function effectively with that. Right. right. So, yeah, I mentioned to you in, you know, the conversation before we jumped on the call that for the last, you know, 10 years, I've been involved heavily with a real estate company. And, you know, they're, they're like every other, they have a really fantastic CRM platform. And, you know, if you ask, realtors who, who may be probably some of the most optimistic people, mm -hmm. you know, what they think they're going to produce over the course of the year, you know, you'll hear people say 20 million and, you know, you'll be about a halfway through the year and they're like 6 million saying, okay, you know, you want to adjust anything. No, no, no. I'm, you know, it's like that, that's the, that's the challenge. I think the sales leadership right. has. Right. And that perfect segue into my next question as a sales leader, how do I create an environment of accountability when it comes to CRM? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, you, there has to be a way that as a leader, I can communicate the essential nature of the information that's being input and how it plays all the way through to every other functional area of the business. I think oftentimes leaders, you know, who are in a sales leadership role do not make that connection. Right. And so people, you know, salespeople think of it, it's like, you know, they're forcing me to do this, you know, um, yep. this is busy work, it's whatever it is. Yep. But really, as you and I both know, in every functional area of the business, it depends on what's going in the front end of that system. Yep. So having the opportunity to slow down and really, I like to take the entire process and then walk the salespeople through, yep. you know, this is where we are actively engaged but let's talk about from here all the way to here. Yes. Right. And if you don't make that connection, it's like anything. Context is everything. And I think a lot of sales leaders fail miserably yes. in giving that full context. So then it's just like, well, wh why do I do that? Well, you do that because everything and everyone else in the entire organization is yep. depending on you doing that. That's right. Yeah. And you stated it perfectly. Like a very practical example is, hey, I'm in operations. I'm looking at your pipeline to figure out who I need to hire, what I need to purchase. Um, I need to prepare, um, you know, so that when that deal gets closed, we're ready to implement or service or provide whatever it is we're selling. And if that is just pure BS, yeah, everyone downstream is making bad decisions based off that information. Absolutely. And I think about it from a manufacturing perspective as well. Like when you go to, yeah. you know, state lead times and you're looking at raw material procurement, all that kind of, I mean, everything is driven yes. off of that information. And so I think, yep. I think that's the piece that most salespeople, A, let's call a thing a thing, right? Yep. Most salespeople have a, a resistance to anything that requires them to put accountability in a system, right? right. So, right. I mean, and, it, and I think I, that's, you know, they don't like 
typically, and these are generalizations, and I want to say yep. that because it's certainly not the case everywhere. Right. But most salespeople, if you think about their um, profile, you know, they, they're they're doing what you and I are doing right now. Yeah. It's in the relationship, and 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 then oh, I've got to switch my left brain to my right brain, or right brain to left brain, yep. and I got to go interfere, and then they just yep. mostly have a block on that. Yep. And they're overly optimistic people, which you want. Yep. Because that's a really great trait to have when you're out working with people yeah. and trying to enroll people into your product or service. But when you hit that interface, it, yeah. it causes you need to have a shift and say, okay, let's really think about this. Oh yeah. So I, I'm I'm in a process right now helping a, a client of mine raise funds. They're trying to raise for a, you know, like an initial launch. It's a, right. it's a startup. And I'm in this leadership role helping them and they've got these numbers in here. I'm thinking, you guys are, you're not going to ever get off the launch pad because you're all lying to yourselves. Right. So let's just stop and literally have a realistic conversation about, do you really think you can get, you know, $50,000 from, you know, person X? Right. Yes or no. And if you were going to put some kind of probability on it, what would that be? Yeah. And all of a sudden it went from like $20 million down to like a million. Yeah. In a, in a conversation that was asking them to be completely honest and recognize the what-so of that moment. And it was hugely, hugely informative. Yeah. Because then it was like, they were about ready to go out and lease, you know, some fil- some buildings and oh, yeah. hire some people and pay, and yeah. they have no money. Right, right. It's a perfect that. example. Perfect yeah. example we're talking about. I, I remember worked with one client where, they had a pipeline, it was the same thing. It was like a crazy number, you know, tens of millions of dollars. But then when I started looking at the pipeline, there was stuff in there that were years old. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and I started asking them like, why, why are these deals in here? And they're like, oh, we, you know, we're still talking to them. We still think right. there's potential there. And I'm like, okay, great. There's another way we can deal with that. We can, but it should be in the pipeline. Pipeline right. stuff we're working, you know, that has yeah. a real chance of closing sometime in the near future. All yeah. this other stuff, we'll carve it out. We'll, we'll, it'll still be in the system. You'll still have visibility. So, and and I and what at the moment, it's like for a lot of these people, it's fear or like a security blanket or something, you know. And you have to break them through that. Completely agree with you. And I, and I will tell you this. I mean, I'll use that real estate experience in the last ten years as a fantastic example. You'll have a realtor will go to grocery store meet somebody in line you know exchange some kind of and they think there's a lead right it's like you know and and then they'll put that lead in their system yep as if it's real and it's just not right right and and but the more leads they think they have right the more opportunity and and it's really not about more it's about qualified exactly exactly that is a tough concept for a lot of companies where everything is like oh that's in our pipeline and they're skipping over this big step called education. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And so that's, I think, the one thing that as a quote that I love that my dad would say all the time, which is garbage in, garbage out. That's right. And in sales leadership, I think one of the things that is an inherent responsibility is to validate the accuracy to the best of your ability everything that goes in the system and, 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 you know, as, uh, and it's no more evident than in a manufacturing organization in particular, because there's 
I mean, in some cases, you're buying raw materials yeah. months in advance. Yes. And, and you don't get to send those raw materials back. Nope. Right? And obsolescence is the last thing yeah. any manufacturer wants. And you and I have talked about obsolescence oh, yeah. once before, it'll, right? It'll kill them. Kill you. And it and yeah, there's so much complexity when you start bringing supply chain in and all that. So much complexity around that. Um, if I can touch on one last thing, it's like yeah, go for it. I've never met a salesperson really who didn't like a brand new product, right? right? And this is another piece of like how you know from an ownership perspective. I don't know what kind of products you're specifically bringing to the market, but one of the other things that I've learned over time is that we used to go to our salespeople and say, what do you think? And they, oh, we love it. You know, it's like, and, and that's a filter, right? but then you also have to run it through a couple other filters because if you just listen to that filter, yeah. you can also be greatly misguided yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. because their enthusiasm for pretty much anything new that can help them differentiate themselves. From, I mean, it's, it's yeah. like, yeah. And so there's a couple of things on the front end and, you know, you learn that the hard way, like, yep. you know, when you have either a warehouse or, you know, whatever, wherever yeah. you hold your um, obsolescence, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, th there, there's where we made that mistake. That's right. That's right. Mark, it has been great listening to you. You have terrific insight. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on Sales Lead Dog. If people want to reach out and connect with you, um, what's the best way for them to make that happen? Yeah, great question. And just to, you know, say the same, I really enjoyed the conversation. And you know, love what you've created here. I mean, what, well, what an amazing creation in and of itself. So thank, thank you for creating the opportunity and inviting me on. Um, so two ways, probably the most effective way would be either by email, which is Mark with a K, and then at MX, the number five consulting.com. So Mark at MX5consulting.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm a very active, almost daily content poster. And it's really just thought leadership that I've got you know, going up on that. Uh, those are probably the two easiest. And then if anybody wanted to contact me by phone, it's the easiest number in the world, 720-800-1111. Oh, that so is easy. That it. is easy. Yeah, I almost feel like I won the lottery on that phone number. So, yeah. <laughs> Mark, thanks again for coming on Sales Lead, Doug. Yeah, thanks, Chris. As we end this discussion on Sales Lead Dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube, and you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash Sales Lead Dog. Sales Lead Dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.